Hey, welcome to Creative Reset, the podcast that explores... Oh, wait, hold on. So welcome to Creative Reset, the podcast that looks at the creative journey to help us understand our obstacles and how to go over, around, or right through them. A quick note before we start this week, uh, if you enjoy listening to the wonderfully creative people we have on the show, please subscribe, rate, do all the things that you're supposed to do, tell a couple people to listen, all that sort of thing. And stay tuned after the show for Six Hours Away off the Wasting Time album by The Modern Experience. Remember, songs here can be found on Bandcamp, and I'll put the link to the song in the show notes. So this week, I'm talking with Deborah Clark Vance, who has published your, you've published your first novel, Sylvie Denied, yes? That's right, that's right. So how, how's your day going so far? My day is going well. I'm, you know, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to get Sylvie Denied in front of people's eyes, so... And that gets a little tiring because, you know, marketing and, and writing are, are not the same. I suppose there's a creativity to marketing, but it's like foreign. It's a foreign world to me. Yeah, I have the, the, I have the same sort of issue. I, I like making things, but the marketing of them is, uh, is a whole nother ballgame. And uh, I don't know, someone else, someone else can do that, I, I guess. I'm not, I'm not that good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was I dreaded it. What what I like about it is this sort of person interpersonal connection that I get to talk to people and create relationships. I mean, that's that's a good thing about social media is it's social. <laughs> there you go. There it you go. Necessarily sell a lot of books, but at least I can talk about them. Well, let's start. Let's talk a little bit about the novel. Uh, can you tell us something about it? Um, sure. It is. Oh man. It, 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 people focus on different things, so it's it's really interesting. But it it is sort of, let me say, I didn't think we'd start with that. But um, some of the themes are okay. It's a woman's journey into finding herself as a young woman. You know, childhood. It's a coming of age story. So how do you find what's true about yourself in a world where you don't think anything in the world seems to be true? So that's sort of the idea around it. Um, and it's a uh, it, the journey gets the per Sylvie into a mess um, that she has to get out of, um, and it explores a lot about feminism or let's say women's struggles, especially during the beginning of the second wave of feminism in the '70s, which is the period that this takes place. Yeah, so uh, it's it's sort of the um, looking into a thought process of a of a girl who has a tra a traumatic incident occur when she's very young, and how that affects her view of the world and her relationship with people. Okay, all right. How much of that is uh, sort of a a journey into yourself, and and how much is it drawn from from other sources? Well, it's a mix. Um, certainly. It's uh, looking at my own truth, like what do I think is important in the world and what do I wanna talk about? 
So that's definitely there. And, and the places that Sylvie goes to are places that I've been, almost all of them, not all of them, okay. but most of them. Um, and some of the, you know, some of the instances, so it's a mix. In fact, um, some people, it, it's semi-autobiographical. So, you know, I think that's clear to people that read it, at least that's what I'm, the feedback I'm getting. <laughs> and I think we all have a story to tell. And, and, and so many people don't think that they have a story to tell. But, you know, in, in, I think everyone has something to say. So how and why did you decide to write a novel? Actually, it's something I decided when I was a teenager. Um, and it took me a while to get there <laughs> because life <laughs> intervened. Um, so, yeah, when I was thinking, you know, I've always been interested in, in creativity. And um, my parents certainly um, encouraged it. By the time I was in high school and an English teacher invited me into her creative writing class, just based on some of my writing that she'd seen, I'd been writing poetry mostly up until then, I got the idea that, yeah, you know, I really want to write stories and I eventually want to write a novel and that's going to be my career and my life. But that didn't happen. When I started thinking about going to college, I realized that, you know, I was, I'm in Illinois and I'm thinking, well, Iowa has a writing program, but then I thought, well, what do you learn in a writing program? You learn how to write, but then what do you write about? So I determined that I would have a life that I could write about or that would give me things to think about that I could write about. And that's what happened. But of course, I, you know, a lot intervened into that, in, in between that. What were some of the things that got in the way of, say, starting earlier? Well, okay. Part of it, and this is, you know, part of the historical part of the historical fiction part of the book, is um, this was the 60s. And I kind of thought at that time, you know, war, Vietnam War is going on. I was involved in anti-war protests. I was involved in civil rights marches and um, just started thinking that a college degree was um, irrelevant in that time because I really didn't think I was going to live past 30. And I think a lot of people in my generation had that feeling. You know, we did the duck and cover drills and um, just were told so much about the nuclear war that was going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, well, before, you know, before I die, when I'm 30, I'd like to have a life and experience as many things as I possibly can. Um, which, you know, if you ever, if you know people who have taken a year off, I did go to freshman year college and then um, left thinking I was going to transfer. And like Sylvie, I transferred, to, you know, I moved to Italy and went to school you know, my plan was to go to school there and that kind of didn't materialize. And then I got pregnant, had children and finished my college about 13 years later. Okay. All right. So that all got in the way. And then I had, you know, I had kids to raise. I had to make money. That all got in the way too. So there you are. Yeah. Money gets in the way. I, I always wonder what would, what would life look like? What would, the nation look like if we had a basic guaranteed income. I wonder how many more people would just say, you know what, I'm just going to go and do what I, I'm just going to go write, or I'm going to go play music, or I'm going to do all the things we dream of doing when we're, when we're little. And we, that gets sidetracked because we need health insurance. We need, we need to make a salary and all that sort of thing. Um, I saw something in your, in your bio, you decided to take Thoreau's advice to simplify can you, can you tell me a little bit more about what that meant? It meant, so I, yeah, I read that, I think it was sophomore year, maybe freshman year in, in high school. 
And I thought, yeah, that makes sense because money really is um, screwing up the world. You know, our pursuit of money, um, if we could simplify our lives and not have so much stuff, um, if we could be more detached and live more simply, then life would be better, the world would be better. And, and I did uh, also think, as he said he was doing, but now I find out he's living in a big house somewhere and he's just going to the woods now and then. <laughs> you know, that's the truth of it. Um, I thought oh, it would be cool to like live self-sufficiently. And what, you know, during the 60s, um, there was that whole back to the land movement that, that was inspiring. You know, I'm reading about people who were just, you know, going and living in the woods and, and um, building their houses with their bare hands and uh, either foraging for food, growing food and that sort of thing. So I, I, I really wanted to experience that. Partly also because I thought if I could live on earth without, without a support system, like without the economy, let's say, then I, you know, if I could do that, I could live anywhere. I could survive anywhere. And I, I decided I could just survive anywhere if the winters aren't too cold. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by this. What would a day in the life look like? when, when you were, when you were in this, when you were doing this self-sufficient living? Okay. So this was California and it was the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas, which does get cooler. In fact, we were above the snow line, which meant even in the summer, well, you also had to make a fire if you want to drink coffee, which I did. I was a complete coffee addict. So every morning I'd wake up and build a fire and um, usually outdoors in the winter, sometimes, you know, a lot of times indoors. So you I build a fire, I'd boil water, boil water to wash with also, you know, have warm water. And then, you know, gather some wood for the fire, gather some water from the spring, um, had some, it was growing some food. And a lot of, you know, a lot of it, we, our car broke down. So we had to hitchhike everywhere. We'd hitchhike to the store now and then to get some supplies. But, you know, I spent a whole lot of time reading. I spent all time reading. I spent some time writing, playing with my kids, you know, letting, teaching them to draw, teaching them how to make games up using trees. <laughs> you know, they, they, they would bounce on a long branch. They just sit on the, you know, of a pine tree or something and just bounce, you know, like a, like a swing kind of thing or, or look, you know, walking in the woods, looking at stuff. So it's a pretty leisurely life, really. You, you think of it, you think it would be more grueling but there was a there was a, a spring nearby. We drank directly the water out of a, a spring, um, and you know there were neighbors to hang out with. So that's that's what I remember. Maybe it's a rosy colored look at it. But... <laughs> Do your kids remember it at all? Not very much because they were they were pretty little, and maybe they blocked it out. <laughs> <laughs> they but they they would make up games. I remember one of their games was called dust fights which sounds pretty grim, but, you know, they just throw dirt at each other until I told them to knock it off. <laughs> but um, I don't know. We had, a, we had dogs, we had kittens and hung out with neighbors. Our neighbor had a horse. Did any of this self-sufficiency work its way into the novel? Yeah. Or back to the land. Yep. There's a whole, there's a whole episode about it. Um, there's a, a California episode. Okay. So, so, so this kind of lifestyle inspired your creativity. Well, I would say, you know, my creativity was inspired by my parents when I was very young. 
and I, you know, I mean, they were middle-class parents, but the more I think about them now that they're gone, I know they lived in Greenwich Village for a while and that's where they met and that's where they lived when they were first married. So I think we're kind of bohemian. I know that my mother's, my grandmother at, in the depression was managing um, a hotel, not a hotel, an apartment building. She was like the concierge in an apartment building in Chicago. My grandfather worked at the Board of Trade and he lost everything. And um, somehow though, she got this job. And my mother, I found out when I was an adult, was hanging out with these jazzers that were renting rooms, you know, an apartment in their building. And she would, she would cut school. I mean, this is, I would never have dreamed because my mom just seemed like, you know, just a, a pretty, you know, kind of down to earth, not a pot smoker. And I'm not even sure if you, my sister insists that my mom smoked pot back then, but I don't know. <laughs> but um, she had these ideas about creativity. So she would, um, give us uh, shirt boards for my dad's shirts that he sent to the laundry and they come back, you know, with shirt board in it to keep it stiff to color on. She wouldn't let us have coloring books. She told us not to copy anything. We couldn't trace or copy. Um, we had to use our own imagination and, and you know, make our own stuff and, and rely on ourselves. So I think that's where it began. And then my grandmother had been a singer in her youth before she got married. And she was married at the age of 30, which, you know, was both my, my mother and grandmother did. So they were, they already had careers before they got married, which was unusual back then. So they had some definite ideas about how to live. And so she encouraged, you know, she, she bought a piano for, for me to learn to play. And I, you know, played piano. And so I was drawing and I was playing piano. And the odd thing is, because we're talking about creativity, but this, I find this odd, but I think it's also endemic in our society. When I'm, I'm in like fifth or sixth grade, my mother signed me up for art lessons in the summer. And the art teacher says, well, you know, she's either got to choose between music or art. Can't do both. You know, it's like, what are you trying to groom? I'm like 10, 11, you know, you've got to start specializing at that age. I don't think people do that now, but that, that was a thing. And, and I chose piano because my grandmother um, was paying for my lessons and bought us a piano and thought, well, if I don't pick piano, I'll hurt her feelings. I'm not gonna hurt anybody's feelings if I say no to this art teacher who's a complete moron anyway. <laughs> but, so yeah, that's where my creativity began. And, um, and I had an uncle who, be, who also worked at the Board of Trade, but he became a, a short story writer while he was working. There was a big, I saw an article of him in the Atlantic where he had, you know, they make this big deal that he's a, he's a businessman who writes poems or stories, you know, like you can't really do those two things. And then he said his stories got shorter and shorter and they became poems. And after he retired, he published about four, four or five books of poetry. And he was featured in the poems on the L, which is a thing they did in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, he had poems which is a cool idea. I don't know if anybody does it anymore. And it was on buses. So they'd have his poem on a you know placard. So when you're sitting there going home, you could read a poem. Well, if that's not a thing, it should, it should be. It should be a thing. I know they did the cows and they've done, they've done other, uh, uh, I know other places have done sort of, you know, painting rocking chairs, painting cows and things like that art, you know, public art, but yeah. uh, you know, there's still space on the L. There sure is, and it's, you know, advertising. And they gave it, I don't know, who, it was the Arts Council, I think, paid for the 
time, you know, the space. I think they had to pay for it. Um, so yeah, I had a pretty creative family. My brother's an architect. That's creative. Oh yeah. My sister was a wannabe writer. She hasn't done it yet, but I think she will. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. So, I mean, you're already sort of talking about uh, my next question, which is about, you know, helpers and detractors. You mentioned the, the, the teacher sort of wanting to put you in a box. And I think that still happens. I think, I think people, I think teachers don't think that they're doing it. Or they don't intend to do it, but we tend to get put in boxes all, all along the way. And, you know, most of us have both oddly detractor voices that, you know, come from the outside and come from the inside. You mentioned that your, your mother in particular was a, was an early supporter, really encouraging you to be, to be creative. Who were some of your other early supporters or detractors? Hmm. Well, my, my peers, my peer group, when I was in second grade, I was, I was, you know, my, my main thing was drawing back then. And my birthday is on Groundhog Day. So I had a thing about groundhogs and I, I had this thing where I thought, well, you know, it's like my spirit animal, even though I didn't have the word for that. And I would draw pictures of groundhogs um, in their little homes with their little acorn cups and, you know, whatever. I wish I had a picture of one so I could actually see what I did, but they were living, you know, with all the things that, you know, little fairy creatures have for, for tools and so on. And I brought one to school one day to show, you know, for show and tell, and all the kids wanted a copy. You know, we don't have, there's no way to copy this. So I said, well, my dad had carbon paper. So I went home and I started copying these, this one picture over and over and over again on carbon paper and making copies and handing them out. I, I did that for a few days. And I thought, you know, this, this sucks really. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, I determined I've never, I didn't know what a graphic artist was, but I thought I'm never going to, you know, like, this is never going to be what I do. Um, but they were supportive. They said, you know, you're such a good drawer. So they were supporters and um, geez, you know, there were few and far between, but I didn't get, it was mostly peers. Mm -hmm. um, and then some teachers they, you know, they taught, I remember in sixth grade, seventh grade, I had teachers who said, you know, this is beautiful writing, you should be, you know, have you ever thought about writing? And so it's, I think, mainly teachers by then. Um, and I, I did win, um, I did win, well, in high school, I got a job at, a, at the drugstore when I was 16. And I was in the uh, magazine and cigarette counter. And um, one for one thing, it made me want to smoke because I was smelling tobacco all the time. So I did, you know, that was a, the bad part of it. But the good part was that they had Poetry Magazine and they had the writer, you know, the, the monthly publications. I started um, entering contests and I won a poetry contest when I was like, I think 16. Um, it was a regional contest for high school kids called, God, what was the name of it? I, I looked it up and I found out that it was for high school kids. H.J. Sharp. The H.J. Sharp Award. It came out of uh, St. Louis, and they, you know, they had. I thought, well, this takes some crust. You know, they send me this letter that says you won twenty-five dollars. It's the first prize award. You can come down to St. Louis, and you know, that, that's how far is that? And you know, like, how how far is that to drive? And I thought, you know, it would cost me more to get there than twenty-five dollars. Like, if I asked my parents to drive me there, so I, you know, I got the check. And I took that as great encouragement, which it was. And then the principal of the high school sent me a letter, which I have, but it didn't, you know. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to be a writer, maybe poet. Okay. Okay. You are also quite the traveler. How does that inform 
how you write, what you write? Well, part of, you know, part of my journey when I dropped out of college was I wanted to know what it was like to not be in my own culture, speaking my own language and learning to think in another language and to see if I was a different person or to see what was consistent about myself. So, you know, it was really a self exploration. Like what, what does it mean to be me? You know, what is your, what is your identity? So how much of your identity comes from where you grow up? And in fact, if you read my bio, you know that eventually I got a doctorate in intercultural communication, which is exactly what explores this. But by then I was, you know, way older than that. So this was pretty much on my own. And um, so I decided, well, I'll go, to, I'll go live in Italy. I'll learn to speak Italian and I'll, and I'll go to school and I'll learn how to translate. So that started that. And then I, you know, I got there, I lived there. I applied for a school. They said, great, um, but you have to do this, this and that. You had to get all these documents put together and you need another year of college before we'll let you in. So I had to go back to the States. I went to U of I Chicago Circle Campus, which is what it was called back then. Mm-hmm. And I could, cause it was a quarter system. I crammed it in. I crammed a year into like a spring. I don't know how, I guess two quarters. I don't know how I did that. It was a lot of languages, including Italian, which see, I had studied French and I knew I could speak French in France and cause I'd been to France um, in high school. I'd been to Puerto, I, you know, I, I don't know. I just like traveling. Anyway, so that was the beginning of that. And then I married somebody who was gonna be drafted. I married an Italian. If he stayed in Italy, he was gonna be drafted into the Navy for three years. And by then we had a child. So we thought, well, we gotta get out of here and go somewhere else. And you know, that determined some of the traveling. Okay, okay. Tell me about the, tell, you went to Howard for, uh, for your PhD, correct? Correct. Tell me a little bit about those years and, and what happens to creativity when you're trying to work on a PhD and all that. That's an interesting question. Well, you know, I mean, at that point, well, I had, for one thing, right then I had a garden design business. So by then I had transferred my artistic, I'd, I'd created, you know, from, from two-dimensional into four-dimensional art. For me, gardening was the three dimensions of sculpture and then time is the fourth dimension. So I had that going on at the same time. But other than that, yes, I concentrated on on studying and everything I read was, um, had to do with my field. It was intercultural communication. So I had to learn research. I had to write research. I had to learn qualitative and quantitative research. And there's, you know, there is, there's a different kind of creativity, I think, in that sort of thinking. And I became pretty proficient at it. Mostly at Howard, the concentration was on qualitative research. And I'm not sure, you know, how, how, how nerdy we want to get about it, but, you know, quantitative is, the, you know, sort of like on a scale of one to five, you know, how happy are you? You know, are you a number four? Are you a number three in happiness? Um, and it pretends that there's no insertion of um, your own opinion. Like it pretends that you are the objective researcher. Mm-hmm. And because it's a you know, um, historically black dominant college and uni- university, uh, there was a, there's a lot of skepticism about quantitative research um, because it pretty much uh, reaffirms what the majority thinks. 
So for a minority college and for women too, and you know, women were discovering the same thing that then you needed to actually interview people about their feelings and don't impose your own predictions on what they're going to say. Okay. And so to add, to figure out those questions, you have to, you have to pull it, you know, you have to like, it has to not be a leading question. It has, you, you can't insert any expectation in the answer yet. It has to be very open-ended to get you to, you know, to talk, to get you to talk. And then I take notes and then I look for themes and then I put those themes together and create a theory. So there's some, I think there's some creativity in that. It's just a whole different, it's a whole different thing. It's sort of, yeah, distilling a person in a way. Yeah, I think there is creativity in that. And, and I think that's, and I worry that um, oftentimes creativity gets uh, drummed out of people, you know, as they, as they go through school, but they need that in order to do this kind of work without reifying people, without objectifying people, without, you know, just quantifying uh, yeah. people. And so, you know, so I think that's, I think that's valuable. And, and your background, I think, helped, helped do that. Yeah. And yeah, and about that, um, you know, I could see in my daughter who I was trying to encourage to, you know, in the same way my mother encouraged me, when she went to school, they told her, here's how you draw a cat. This is how you draw a cat. This is how you draw a dog. And it's usually very cartoony. It's a circle. And then, you know, the body and then the tail does this. And so she thought, you know, she had to do that correctly or she wasn't a good drawer. Um, and no matter what I said, it was more important to her what they were saying. And I think that's when it starts is your peers are imposing what they've learned, you know, um, is how to, and I, I kept telling her, you know, that's not drawing, that's writing. You are writing a cat. You're not drawing a cat. You're just writing it down what, you're, what a cat's supposed to be. And it, and it does begin by that. And, you know, that's the whole thing too about my, you know, sort of search is that there is this consciousness that is, is oppressive and it's telling us how to think, what to think about, how to think about it. And in the same way you're saying about research, it's like, you know, it's gotta be quantitative. It's, it's not, it's not science. And of course with human beings, we're not, you know, we're not looking at um, plant leaves under a microscope. We're talking to human beings and we are human beings. So you can't be objective. You know, just, no, you're, just you're always bringing yourself, you're always bringing yourself and, and having empathy is also a big, a big part of that and being able to, to write and even just being, even just reading novels, you start to create empathy. You have to identify with, with the characters and all that sort of thing. It's, let's find a way to try to pull all of this back to, to the novel and, and see how this all kind of feeds into that. How does empathy and all of in all of your artistic experiences and drawing outside the lines and all that work into the novel and then help people to empathize with the characters in the novel. Okay, so when I started writing Sylvie Denied, I had a lot of notes. I'd written a lot of short stories um, with various main characters that I, you know, had tried to get published over the years and would get positive rejections over and over. Um, and, um, and I thought, well, here I am, you know, four years ago, I sat down and I said, I'm gonna make this into a novel. I actually wrote a novel in the, you know, some, a little time, like 10 years before, and I ditched it because I didn't like where it was going. I thought, yeah, it's, it's a stupid ending. And I had to look at, I looked at all these stories and all these various plots and all, you know, and everything. And I had to find a main character who 
I could empathize with, for one thing, and give her a, an issue. You know, you know, what's her challenge? So what is, what is it that um, she wants and what is it about her that's preventing her getting it, which is the classic, what is the classic hero's, hero journey, right? Yeah, so, uh, you know, looking and then looking for the plot line. And yes, I did draw from my from my life. And there were some unsavory characters in my life. But I also wanted to make them not completely detestable. I mean, there you could you you could detest any of them, I suppose, or many of them. At least to me, I have a very dry sense of humor. And I thought the book was hilarious. But the, the reviewers are talking about how you know, how, how emotional it is and, you know, heart-wrenching and tragic and all this. I'm thinking, yeah, but it's funny, isn't it? I mean, even my husband, when my husband read it, he said, I said, what'd you think? He said, I couldn't, he said, I just keep twitching. I can't. <laughs> so, um, but I, I had one reviewer who said it's hilarious and she's not from the United States. She's from um, Holland, I think. I wonder if, I wonder if some of your, your, you know, inner, inner, intercultural experiences kind of makes it so it's appealing to different cultures in different ways yeah could be. so it, it took a while so you 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 had started you uh decided to to stop working on the the original novel some 10 years ago or so that you're you know, you're working on did was there anybody who kind of helped push you over the finish line how did you how did you end up getting from this isn't working to i've got it okay well, when I was doing that, that was like when I was teaching and when I was teaching, I also had part-time, I had like several part-time jobs and I had a kid still in high school. Um, so I had to, you know, do all that. Um, so I was pretty much waking up early in the morning, writing by myself. Nobody was reading it except for me. When we, you know, we left, we were living in Baltimore, Maryland, and we decided to move to Cincinnati, which is, you know, its own creative story and one of the first things I did when I got here was go on next door which is such a great source and a few months after we moved here a woman who had published three books was starting a writer's group and I joined up other people came and went but I she and I stayed together we both finished about the same time um, she's looking for an agent I went ahead and, and, and self-published and you know, I thought, you know, getting an agent at this point is going to take forever. And then, you know, I might not be able to read anymore. <laughs> Who knows? But, but she was, we were really good for each other. She saw things, you know, she saw some weaknesses in my writing and I saw some in hers. And, and I, I really appreciated her input. But she's pretty much, there were a few other people that, that came in, you know, and, and offered some, some helpful advice. And, you know, the people, like my family, I would keep asking them and they were like, yeah, I don't know. They were afraid I was going to write about them and they were afraid I was going to say bad things or they were afraid I was going to conjure up memories they didn't want to live. And so I was surprised to hear that they really like it. So I'm happy about that. You, yeah. So you self-published. Uh, I, I got to tell you that I, I, I love the cover. Oh, I think, okay. it's, I think it's a really great cover. How, what was it like to, uh, to self-publish? It was, it was fun. It was easy. Um, it doesn't mean I do everything. I mean, I, so again, when I moved here, I heard there was a, a guy named um, David Pepper, who's now written like a series of, um, 
what do you call it, spy thrillers. But it, the first one was with this one company and he knew the guys that had started it who had worked in publishing and they didn't like how writers were treated in publishing and they determined to create an experience that was more positive and pleasurable. So it was, you know, self-publishing is usually, it's a package. I, you know, you, you pay up front, but you get all the royalties and it really wasn't all that expensive. Um, and it, it takes as much or as little time as you want. They could have published in as little as three months, which was what he wanted because he was writing in 2015, he wrote and finished and completed a book about the Russian interference in the uh, election, the US election. He completed it before the summer of 2015. Wow. He said, I know I've got to get a publisher immediately because he saw what was going on. And you know, he was very successful and he loved the company. I, I wrote down his name, I heard him speak publicly and I wrote that down. But um, yeah, so the cover, the, you know, I they didn't they didn't make me do anything i i had editors look at it um you know some offered some ideas about changing the order of some you know like changing the order of chapters but it was always up to me the the uh i chose a 12 point font just because i thought it was easier to read mm -hmm. most of them are like 11 or maybe 10 and you know i'm when i and you know, and I found somebody who said she, until she read my book, she hadn't been able to read any books. And I thought, well, maybe that's a 12 points. <laughs> <laughs> For the cover, we went to bookstores. My husband and I would go to a bookstore where they had books and look at like, where, where's one that like, what color attracts your eye? What, you know, what kind of um, images or what kind of type font and everything. And I, I, you know, I chose that color. I chose the you know, the, the idea, um, and I wanted the white um, lettering. And then, you know, they came, but I had to reject too that, you know, the first one looked like Alice in Wonderland throwing up. And, that, you know, I said I wanted blue when they made it red. It was really gross. And then the one after that looked like, it looked like um, Ghostbusters um, slime coming out of the head of, some, of a woman. <laughs> it were just, you know, I said, come on, you know, get somebody. So they got somebody else and this guy just nailed it. Um, nice. And there's all kinds of, you know, there's more and more people who are, who are doing this, you know, and part of, part of my thing was I went to a number of writers conferences to find an agent and I had one guy picked out. I thought he was going to be perfect for me. And he was such a jerk that, I'll, you know, I thought, man, how could he look so good on paper? And when, you know, he presents himself like, you know, I, you know, whatever, I, whatever attracted me. And then he, then face to face, he was just kind of, kind of just dismissive and and supercilious, and you know, and I thought, man, I you know I don't know what to do. And so, anyway, it, I think it worked out well. And and I also found out at that conference, well, several things. One about the MFA, which I personally think is sort of a racket. You know, you've been in academia, so you, you might under see where I'm coming from, but. I know that colleges will create events. So, it, you know, when I look at some of the poetry journals, I think, okay, this college created this journal and they can say, you can get, you know, you come here and we'll publish you, you know, you'll get published. So you're published in basically their journal. And then it becomes whoever graduates from, you know, this is, a lot of people are gonna listen to this and hate what I'm saying probably, but, um, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I think it's worth considering that um, you, you graduate from a school that has a certain, person, you know, writer on staff who writes a particular way, who trains people to write that same particular way, and they hire each other. 
they end up in the same publishing company, they do the same editing and they keep publishing books similar to the books they like. Um, it's just sort of like an inbreeding. Yeah, so that's what Yeah, I you know, I've, I've talked to uh, uh, Latin American writers who have come to this, to particular uh, uh, programs in the United States to write. And what ends up happening is the, the program that they show up at want them to reproduce basically the 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 famous the boom novels mm -hmm. of the you know of the 60s and 70s for example you know garcia marquez and stuff like that right the the, the that sort of popular yeah. thing they want them to just reproduce what they what they saw as as being successful as opposed to discovering new pathways and all that sort of so i understand exactly you know where you're going with this and, and you know i've seen it in other places as well yeah oh go ahead yeah my, i mean i think you know, Medina, who I was working with, you know, the other writer, she said, yeah, well, you know, if an agent gets a bestseller, they don't have to work anymore. You know, you just keep that guy publishing. He keeps turning it out. You keep getting the royalties. That's it. You know, that's what they're all looking. She said, that's what they're all looking for. They, so I see on Twitter, these, um, you know, they seem like recent graduates who are trying to get, I don't know, 3000 followers. Like they want to do it really fast. First, they got to get the thousand. You know, you notice like, yeah, I got to get to a thousand and they get the thousand. And then so now they can go ask for, you know, go to an agent and say, I've got my social media platform all set. I've got, in, I've got Instagram, I've got Twitter, I've got LinkedIn, I've got Pinterest, um, I've got Facebook, I've got this many people following me. So we're good to go. Okay. All right. I, I, I guess I didn't realize why people were so obsessive about, <laughs> about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So because you self-published, where uh, where can one find your your book, for example? It is everywhere because a part of, you know, getting self-published is you get hooked up with Ingram and they are the ones that get you in the bookstores. And there aren't that many. I mean, we used to have Borders and Barnes and Noble. Now there's just Barnes and Noble, um, but all the independent bookstores, bookstores, um, it's bookstores, bookshop.org is one site, any bookstore. So I'm out there, Sylvia Knight is everywhere. It, you, can, you can look up any, your very local little bookstore, type in Sylvia Denied, Deborah Clark Vance, it'll pop up, you can order it from them. They can either ship it or you can have, pick it up or you can go to your book, you can go to like, we've got a new bookstore here. The poor guy opened right before COVID and he's still surviving. Yeah, people, I mean, there's a lot of support for him because um, you know, we lost some other bookstores, but you can go and to their, like, I can go to Downbound Books, look up my title, ask them to order it, and then they'll have it, and I go pick it up, or they'll ship it, or whatever. Oh, very nice. Very um, nice. But it's also on, you know, everything's on Amazon, of course, and I, you know, I can't, I, you know, it's like the evil empire. We can't, like, do, do without them, I guess. We can't destroy them they're just there. And if I didn't have them, probably, you know, my book would disappear into some obscurity, but. And so is it also available uh, digitally then? Yes. Okay. Yeah. There, there's a EPUB. They don't call it Kindle anymore. Um, EPUB is what they call it. And I'm not sure what that means. I think it's an Apple um, thing. Okay. But yeah, because right. when I do it, when I see it on my, on my laptop, it's, it's, seems to be Apple. It's in the Apple books. That's how I read it. Okay. Okay. And you know, one other question since you, since you um, uh, self-published, how does marketing work with that? 
Well, pretty much the same as, you know, what I, what I don't have is a big advertising budget like Random House would give, but they only give it to their top sellers. And that's the dirty secret that I learned at some of these conferences. They're say, you know, they say, you know, they'll give you an advance, but they expect you to go out and figure out how to market your book. Or, um, and you know, this is maybe my distorted understanding, but this is what I got. And I took copious notes because I do that. <laughs> and I read over them and I studied them. Um, but that's what I took away from various um, sessions and various conferences. Uh, shoot. So there's, so you, what you have to do is get involved in, I don't know, there's book reviewer groups. Some of them are free, some you have to pay for. I've, I hired a marketer. And I've been working with her. She's at a, a she's at a, you can find her, Sherry Stout at um, Where Writers Win. Any writers out there, she's, you know, got a whole lot of support uh, for writers on there and helped me set up, you know, you start with your blog. If, you know, you, you blog your posts, you try to, you know, attract people to your blog, get them to see the book. Hopefully they buy the book. Maybe somebody will review the book. Um, get involved in some of the, um, you know, book buzz, Goodreads, you know, try to find re reviewers. And, you know, there's ways to attract reviewers. Some are you offer a low price or a free book and, um, and et cetera. But, you know, there's no, I don't, I'm not, I haven't paid for any advertising. You know, most of it's been word of mouth. Um, people that I, you know, that I talk to and they talk to. So, you know, and now um, book, book clubs are, as, you know, are starting to, uh, want to read it libraries you know appearing in libraries and so on nice yeah. so you so you mentioned so you mentioned your uh, uh your blog can you give us the address for your for your website real quick yeah sure it's deborah De deborah clark vance it's d-e-b-o-r-a-h-c-l-a-r-k-v-a-n-c-e.com okay and you're on twitter i'm on twitter um i think my name is dabinsky with yeah, Dubinsky, and I'm on Instagram, same name. Okay. Um, Pinterest maybe the same. Though Pinterest doesn't do well. It's such a visual thing. It's hard to do for me. It's been hard to, to figure out how to show my book on Twitter on uh, Pinterest. Okay, and we'll have and in the show notes, we'll have all of your your addresses and things like that, so people can find your book, people can find your blog, they can follow you and see what you're up to and see what's coming up. Uh, uh, I, I've got two more questions for you, and I'll and I'll let you go. So, one is, what is coming up next? What are you are you work are you working on another novel? Are you? I do have another novel that I started. It's called My Husband Talks to Aliens, um, and it's completely different, of course. I mean, it sounds different, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I've been kind of yeah, I'm working on that. That's the main thing, and of course, I continue to blog, and I you know. It's, kind of, I don't know if you'd call them meditations, but it's it's sort of like some of the things I'm interested in that I'm blogging about. And I've been able to be out in nature. This is Spring Grove, um, which when I was a garden designer living in Maryland, I knew as an arboretum, Spring Grove Arboretum. I move here, you know what? It's also a cemetery. So <laughs> <laughs> and that, see that, it looks like Notre Dame. Some guy built that for his wife. You know, that's her grave. It looks like the cathedral oh, no. of Notre Dame. Yeah. So that's uh, Spring Grove. And it's, you know, famous for its, its trees. It has champion trees. If you ever heard of such a thing, there are a bunch of them in there. Okay. Rises for being the biggest and the most beautiful trees. All right. 
So it seems like uh, Sylvie denied germinated for a very long time. What would you say to people who think they might have something to say, there might be a story growing inside them for a long period of time? What sort of words of encouragement do you have to help them make that leap uh, to sharing their own wonderful stories? I think, you know what, I was thinking about what is the biggest obstacle? And the biggest obstacle, I think, for people wanting to put their work out there or create something that they will share is sort of fear of rejection, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and when I published, I realized I just put my, I just took my brain and put it out in the street for everybody to look at. And, you know, that's kind of scary. And yes, it is. But um, so what's the downside? You know, the, the upside is you, you put your work out there, people read it and some might hate it and some will love it. So I would just say, keep plugging away. Um, and as you continue to, to craft it, you know, it's not going to come out the first time. What it took me, what, decades to write this thing. Um, it's not going to, and I edited it and re-edited it, rewrote it. You know, I was editing, it came out in February. I was, I even had it on Amazon and I was still taking it, you know, I said, Hey, I got a new version. And I told the publisher, you know, put it, put it back up there. Uh, or take it down. I, I got to do something. I got to take out this whole page because it's just wrong. Um, or I'd find a mistake or, you know, whatever. There were edits going on up until December and it was published in February. So, you know, it's never, it's sort of that thing. And now I see mistakes. And I thought, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Or I wish I had done this. And it's never going to be pristine, but you have another chance. You can write another book and make that, you know, the one that you want it to be. So, yeah, I think, um, you just have to believe in your, that you, I think we all do. We all have to be, believe that we also, we are part of, cult, we are culture. We create culture. Culture isn't a thing that's out there. It's, it's all of us putting into it. We are all creating the consciousness and um, we all have a voice and, and should, um, should use it. Well, thank you very much. I think that's, I think that's very wise. And, uh, and thank you for being here. And, uh, and and speaking with us today, and uh, and good luck on the uh, the next uh, the next novel. Oh, thanks. It'll be a while. Probably another <laughs> thirty years. <laughs> well, I appreciate this. This, you know, I, I saw the um, your your um, podcast before I knew you were looking for. You know, I just saw it and I clicked on it. And I started. Re and then you put out a notice, and um, so yeah, I I love what you're doing with this. Oh, good, 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 good. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying listening to this, the, the, the journeys that people take, the creative journeys people take. I think it's, uh, I think it's wonderful. And, uh, and, you know, and I hope, and I hope more people participate. I want, you know, it, like I said, I think everybody has a story to tell. And I like, I personally like listening to the stories. And so, you know, and, and, and reading them and all that. And so, uh, you know, so I hope more people do. Well, and I hope you read my book. And if you do, that you, you know, put your thoughts on Amazon. With <laughs> Doesn't have to be long. Just, you know, because, you know, you find out like how much Google plays a role in, in book sales. Yes. Google, everything. All that, all that. The algorithm. That's, that's the thing. The algorithm. Yep. There's a novel. There's a, there's a dystopic, there's a dystopic movie right there. The algorithm. Yeah, <laughs> sure. All right. right. Thank well, thanks you. again, and uh, uh, and I look forward to reading it, and uh, uh, and and I'll and I'll let you know, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, bye bye. Bye bye. And now here's six hours away 
off the Wasting Time album by The Modern Experience. Six hours away and I'm pretty stupid Six hours away and I'm feeling dumb I hope the next time I see Cupid I'll duck his arrow then I'll run Have you ever got the news? Heading home from Troy That she told you on the phone She says she's got another boy And have you ever stopped your car? On the side of the road all alone Just sat there in the dark I word all your emotions flow Six hours away and you're pretty stupid Six hours away I'm feeling dumb The next time I see Cupid I'll duck his arrow and then I'll run Well, I've crossed that bridge Past Louisiana with tears in my eyes And I've been in New Hartford Drove through Summer Hill a thousand times And yet that day stains like a pain That hangs over my fragile mind Six hours away and I'm pretty stupid Six hours away I'm feeling dumb I hope the next time I see Cupid I'll duck his arrow and then I'll run And all the times I ran away Who had I really saved? Six hours away, you're feeling dumb. 